Our speaker this afternoon is Civil War expert and professor Adam Rothman. Rothman received his BA from Yale University and PhD from Columbia University. He is currently associate professor of history at Georgetown University. He teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in Atlantic history, 19th century US history, and the history of slavery. Rothman's previous books are Slave Country, American Expansion, and the Origins of the Deep South, and Major Problems in Atlantic History. He has co-authored with his colleagues, Allison Gaines. His articles on American history have been published in Atlantic Studies, William and Mary Quarterly, and History Compass. Rothman is an expert in the history of the United States from the Revolution to the Civil War and in the history of slavery and abolition in the Atlantic world. He is an, or, he is an organization of American historians, distinguished lecturer. Today, Rothman will share excerpts from Beyond Freedom's Reach, his book that uh, is for sale right behind us, and which has recently been selected as a 2016 Book of the Year by Louisiana Endowment for Humanities. So, hot off the press and hot off the prizes. And so he'll be reading from this book, which is a true story of three slave children who were taken from New Orleans to Cuba by their owner during the U.S. Civil War. And it's about their mother's efforts to recover them. Please join me in welcoming Adam Rothman to the Boston Athenaeum. Carol, thank you very much. I'd like to thank the Boston, Boston Athenaeum for giving me an opportunity to present this story to you today. Um, and thank you to everybody at the Athenaeum who made this possible. Sometimes, because of the work that I do, I get asked if I'm from the South. And I say, yes, I'm from the South End of Boston, which is where I was born and raised, not too far from here. But, I, but today I want to take you rather far from here. I want to take you back 150 years, 153 years in fact, and I want to take you a thousand miles away. So the day is January 1st, 1863, an auspicious day in American history. That's the day that Abraham Lincoln signed the what? the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared forever free those slaves in territory still in rebellion against the United States. So a thousand miles away from Abraham Lincoln, a woman named Rose Herrera, a slave woman, sat in the Orleans Parish Prison and Police Jail, the building that you this this building that you see behind me. She had been thrown in jail a couple of weeks earlier in the middle of December of 1862 for assaulting, allegedly assaulting, a white woman. So she sat in jail, this dark, cold, clammy New Orleans jail, waiting for a liberation that didn't come. It didn't come with the Emancipation Proclamation, but because being a slave in New Orleans, uh, 
She was not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. New Orleans had been captured by the Union and was therefore exempt from Lincoln's proclamation. So she sat there, she waited there in jail with an infant son at her side. And as she waited in jail, the wife of her owner, a woman named Mary DeHart, kept visiting her time and again to implore Rose to go with her to Havana, where her owner, a dentist named James DeHart, had already gone. So time and again, Mary DeHart came to the jail to, to implore Rose to go with her to Havana, but Rose said no, because she didn't, she didn't want to leave her friends and family behind in New Orleans. So Mary DeHart was getting desperate and finally threatened Rose that if she didn't agree, then Mary DeHart would just take her three of her other children who were in Mary DeHart's possession, she would just take them to Havana without, uh, without Rose Herrera. And finally, on January 15th, uh, 1863, after one last visit to the jail, Rose, uh, Mary DeHart took three of Rose Herrera's children, put them on the steamship, the B.O.B.O., and sailed to Havana. That event was what I call the kidnapping in the twilight of slavery. So today I'd like to share with you uh, the details of that story and the, the panorama of Rose Herrera's life from slavery to freedom. But before I go through the story, I just want to tell you why I think this is an important story, why I think it deserves to be known and to be heard. And the first reason, I think, is that in the history of slavery and emancipation, historians and scholars have had too much of a tendency to, to speak and write in aggregates, to compile from the fragments of evidence that we have at our disposal sort of general portraits of what it must have been like to be a slave or a master. So we have a composite kind of portrait. What we don't know enough about are the individual lives of people who endured slavery and those who made their way to freedom. What was it like for them in the particulars of their life. So in other words, I think we need a history of slavery and freedom that has more of a human face. And the story of really an ordinary person like Rose Herrera makes that possible. Now I'm sure all of you can, I, can name uh, two or three uh, people who lived as slaves in American history. There are some famous ones that you know. You know Frederick Douglass. You know of Harriet Tubman and possibly Sojourner Truth. But most of the people we know off the top of our heads like that, we could, we could count on one hand. And I think it's important to populate our historical memory with more people and more, diver, more diverse stories. So this is an opportunity to tell the history of slavery and emancipation in a very individual and human kind of way. It also, Rosa Herrera's story is also a revealing story in three significant ways. First of all, I think that her story really illustrates the conflict 
between two basic concepts of belonging. Two concepts of belonging that were really at war with each other through the history of slavery and that sort of erupts, erupted into view in the moment of emancipation. One was a concept of belonging that slaveholders had. They had erected it on a platform of property rights, the concept of belonging that allowed them to say that these people belong to me, that the children of Rose Herrera don't belong to her or her husband, but to their owner. The concept of belonging that allowed Mary to Hart to think it was perfectly right, perfectly legal, to take Rose Herrera's children to Cuba. That was one concept of belonging, the pro-slavery concept of belonging. But over and against that was another concept of belonging, a concept of belonging that enslaved people themselves held dear, held firm to. And that was a concept of belonging that allowed Rose Herrera to say that even though my children are owned by somebody else, they are still mine. They belong to me. It was a concept of belonging built on, on ideas of natural right, on institutions of family and kinship that endured through slavery under tremendous pressure. And we can see those two concepts of belonging really uh, at conflict with, with each other in the story of the kidnapping of Rosa's children. So that's one thing that this story illustrates, one thing it reveals. Another thing it reveals is the mayhem of the process of emancipation in the United States. The mayhem of emancipation. I fear that both in our scholarship and in our popular and cultural memory of emancipation, we have too clean of an image of how it took place. Too many people still think of Lincoln as the great emancipator who freed millions of people with the stroke of his magical pen. Now, I would never discount the significance of a document like the Emancipation Proclamation but we must really understand its significance. We must understand what it did and it did not do. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation by itself did not free anyone. And it does not, examining what Lincoln did, or even what Congress did, doesn't tell us very much about how people became free, how they experienced that, uh, that liberation if in fact that's how they experienced it. In fact, the process of emancipation was a bloody, brutal process. It was not necessarily linear. People did not always go simply from slavery to freedom. Some went from slavery to freedom, and then they went back to slavery before they were finally emancipated for good. So I think Rose Herrera's story gives us a bit of a window into the mayhem of the process of wartime emancipation. And finally, I think Rose Herrera's story allows us to appreciate just how revolutionary emancipation really was. I fear that we have forgotten this, and it's easy to forget. The struggle for uh, for racial equality 
and for justice continues in the United States today, 150 years after emancipation. Today in the United States, today here in Boston, people still feel an urgent need to assert, to declare, to proclaim that black lives matter. And that clearly seems to indicate the failure, the limits of emancipation. But I think when we go back to the 19th century, when we take a close look at what happened uh, during the Civil War, it becomes clear that that process was truly revolutionary. People experienced it. People on all sides experienced it as a revolution. And the story of Rose Herrera's children helps us, I think, to understand what was so revolutionary about the process of emancipation during the Civil War. So those are the reasons why I think we should pay attention to this story. It gives us a history of emancipation with a human face. It illustrates these two concepts of belonging that were in conflict with each other. It reveals the mayhem of the process of emancipation and also the revolutionary quality of that experience. So those are all grand themes. How does, how does the nitty-gritty how do the nitty-gritty details of Rose Herrera's life help us to appreciate all of these things? Well, one of the extraordinary things about Rose Herrera's life is that we know anything about it at all. Being born a slave in a remote area of Louisiana. Well, we know a lot about Rose Herrera's life just through fragments of the historical record, some of them made possible by slavery itself in ironic ways. Um, so as I discuss the trajectory of Rose Herrera's life, I'll share with you some of that historical material that gives us uh, a window into uh, where she lived and how she might have lived. So Rose Herrera was born in 1835 in the parish of Point Coupee, Louisiana. This uh, map behind me is an extraordinary map that was done in the 1850s, a map of all of the plantations and their owners from New Orleans uh, up to Natchez. Rosehur was born on the plantation of a man named Octave LeBlanc, an old Creole planter from Louisiana. We know that because her baptismal record exists. It tells us who her owner was, who her mother was. It does not tell us who her father was, however. So she was born a slave, the property of Octave LeBlanc. And Octave LeBlanc lived in Point Coupee Parish uh, in, on the plantation that here is identified as belonging to Jay Stinson. And that's because in, in 1853, LeBlanc sold his plantation and many of his slaves to Stinson. And LeBlanc moved with several of his slaves, who he didn't sell, to New Orleans. One of the slaves he took with him to New Orleans was Rose Herrera. So LeBlanc and Herrera arrive in New Orleans in 1853, an auspicious year, an infamous year in the history of New Orleans. This was the year that the yellow fever swept the lower Mississippi Valley, killing thousands of people in New Orleans. That 
was uh, Rose Herrera's welcome to this queen city of the south. We know that LeBlanc set himself up as a commissioned merchant in New Orleans, and we know that the same debts that compelled him to sell his plantation in Point Coupee also ultimately, in the late 1850s, compelled him to liquidate his assets. And what were his assets in 1857? Human beings. So in 1857, the dispersal of the slave community owned by Octave LeBlanc was completed. We can actually trace the what I call the commodity life of enslaved people in New Orleans, the way they were bought and sold, with some specificity. Because in Louisiana, because of the, the way the law worked, slaves are considered real estate. And any time somebody sold a slave, uh, the bill of sale had to be notarized. So in New Orleans to this very day, in the notarial archives, are thousands upon thousands of bills of slave for, uh, bills of sale for human beings, including Rose Herrera. But it's not just those legal records uh, in which Rose Herrera's commodity life appears. You have to remember that New Orleans was the, the center of the domestic slave trade in the 19th century. The linchpin of the slave trade, thousands Thousands, hundreds of thousands of enslaved people were sold from the Upper South and the Border South uh, through New Orleans and into the expanding uh, cotton and sugar plantation kingdom uh, there. Those bills of sale are testimony to that traffic, but so are the newspapers. Routinely, the daily newspapers ran advertisements for slaves along with the sale of land and livestock and pharmaceuticals and anything else that was sold in the market. People advertised the sale of slaves. This advertisement is from the New Orleans Daily Picayune, March uh, 13, 1858. It is an advertisement for several so-called good house servants. Can you read the names? Leo Cadi, about 40 years, good cook, washer, and ironer. Rose, aged about 20 years, good washer and ironer, with her two children, aged 3 and 18 months. Rose. That is Rose Herrera, advertised for sale in the New Orleans newspaper. Rose Herrera was sold four times between 1857 in 1862, four times in the space of five years. She ultimately ends up in the hands of a man named James DeHart, an immigrant dentist living in New Orleans with his wife and small child. DeHart bought Rose and two children. When he bought her, right on the eve of Louisiana's secession from the Union, she must have been pregnant. Because a few months later, uh, the records indicate that she had had a third child. It's a strange world, of course, where people advertise other people for sale. A strange world where dentists own slaves. 
But that was the reality, the, the daily reality of slavery in a place like New Orleans. So Rose had a commodity life, and the experience of being bought and sold, of being treated like property. But she also had a social life, independent of that, as enslaved people did. She had family, she had friends, she had uh, a cultural life. Um, she was a person. You wouldn't know it from the bills of sale, necessarily. So the bill of sale uh, just indicate that Rose has two children. doesn't say who the father is. Right? Because according to the law of slavery, it actually doesn't matter who the, follow, the father is because the offspring of, a, of an enslaved woman belong to her owner. The father has no rights, no matter who he is. But we happen to know that Rose had a husband, and her husband was a man named George Herrera, who was the father of her children. George Herrera was a free man of color. Uh, New Orleans had thousands of free people of color, uh, one of the distinctive populations of the city. Free people of color in New Orleans are usually represented as an, a kind of elite class among the city's black population. Many of them owned property. Some of them even owned slaves themselves. They are said to have kept their distance from, uh, from the slave population. But George Herrera is a counterexample. Rose, in later testimony, said that she and George had been married at the cathedral in New Orleans, although there's no record of her marriage. They seem to have been uh, congregants at a Catholic church that still exists in New Orleans called St. Augustine. This is outside St. Augustine today. Uh, the church has put up this memorial uh, and called it the, uh, uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Slave. Uh, and I like to think that Rose Herrera, um, who might have been part of that number of unknown slaves, is now part of the known. So this was Rose Herrera's life on the eve of the Civil War. She was both a property of a dentist, but she was also a person with a family and connections in New Orleans. It's interesting that, that DeHart bought Rose and her children just three days before Louisiana seceded from the Union. And he must have thought it was a good investment. In fact, Louisiana slaveholders quite explicitly endorsed secession as a way of holding on to their slave property in the face of the rising forces of, of abolition in the North, represented in their mind by Abraham Lincoln. But this is a grand case of historical irony, because the, the very action that slave owners took to secure their slave property, secession, uh, spelled its doom. And nowhere was this more apparent than New Orleans. In April, the end of April, 1862, the Union Navy steamed up the Mississippi River, bypassed Confederate defenses, and seized New Orleans. So from the middle of 1862 through the end of the war, the United States, the Union, was in possession and control. It governed uh, New Orleans. But remember that uh, April 1862 is before the Emancipation Proclamation, and when the Union arrives, uh, 
it is actually committed to upholding slavery in Louisiana. At least upholding the rights of loyal slaveholders in Louisiana. Rebels were another matter. But it was often hard to figure out who was who in a place like New Orleans. So one of the key challenges facing the new union governors of New Orleans is what to do about this very thorny problem of slavery. And here is where we get to the very significant Massachusetts connection to the abolition of slavery in Louisiana. These are two men who played a a pivotal role in that process. Um, The man on the left, the somewhat less attractive fellow, uh, is named Benjamin Butler. General Benjamin Butler, a Massachusetts Democrat, who became a general during the Civil War, uh, was sent by Lincoln uh, down with the Union Navy to, to govern Uh, to govern New Orleans after its capture. Butler is famous for a couple of things during the war. He's famous for identifying fugitive slaves who came to a fort in Virginia as contraband of war, thereby giving a kind of legal rationale for their confiscation and ultimately emancipation. That was very early in the war, in 1861. It becomes the foundation for a union policy of confiscate, of a limited union policy of confiscation and emancipation that eventually grows into Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863. The other thing Butler is known for is as, uh, as the union commander in New Orleans, he issued an order in 1862 declaring that any woman in New Orleans Uh, who insulted uh, a Union soldier in public would be considered essentially as a prostitute and treated as such. Uh, This order provoked an outcry among uh, Confederates uh, and even gained attention in a program uh, overseas. In New Orleans, he became known as Beast Butler uh, for these actions. But he was a very cagey fellow, very smart fellow, And he played a kind of, uh, he walked a tightrope when it came to slavery. Um, Trying to preserve the rights of loyal slave owners on the one hand, but really trying to undermine the the slave property of the rebels who he found in New Orleans. So he represents one uh, faction of of Massachusetts anti-slavery in New Orleans. Butler was replaced at the end of 1862 with another Massachusetts politician, a man named Nathaniel Banks, who's the rather more dapper fellow on the right. Uh, Banks uh, was one of the early leaders of the Republican Party here in Massachusetts, the first elected Speaker of the uh, House of the Massachusetts, the, the the first Republican elected as Speaker of the House of the Massachusetts Legislature. Uh, It was Banks, who was the Union military commander in New Orleans at the moment when Rose Herrera's children were taken to Cuba. One more thing about Banks. As a young man, according to his biographer, every Saturday he would walk into Boston 10 miles from Waltham and 
read here at the Athenaeum. So there's a connection between Athenaeum and Rose Herrera, indirect as, as it is. So this brings us to the moment when Rose Herrera's children were taken to Cuba with Banks as, as the Union commander in charge of New Orleans. So I want to take you back to that moment when the children uh, are boarded on the BOBO to look a little bit more closely at what happened. Because now you know, you know that Rose was in jail, but now you know that Rose had a husband and a mother, and both of them were in New Orleans as well. And they tried to prevent the children from being taken to Cuba. I just want to read you a, a brief passage from the book that shows you what happened on that day. Okay. So much of, much of my account of what happened is taken from a, a, a trial that took place in 1865, which I'll get to in a, in a few minutes. Um, but just so you know where this information is coming from. Contrary to the assertion that the children appeared happy, Leo Kadi declared that the oldest was crying. Leo Kadi was Rose Herrera's mother. Leo Kadi stayed on board the steamer as long as she could, but when Rose did not arrive, she left and took a cab to the jail. There she found Rose, too weak to stand, and escorted her home. George Herrera also tried to intervene. Rose later testified that her husband did everything he could to rescue the children, but DeHart acted mean to him. George Herrera pleaded with the provost marshal to prevent the children from leaving, but was informed that DeHart had received permission to take the children on the condition that she bring them back within three months. On January 14th, George Herrera wrote a, let, a last-ditch letter to General Nathaniel Banks, the top union brass in New Orleans, imploring him to stop the children from being spirited away to Cuba. This is a, um, an image of the letter. And I'll read it to you. It's a bit hard to read. Major General P.N. Banks, sir, my wife Rose, belonging to Mrs. Widow Rowland of this city, is now confined in prison by order of her mistress, who is on the eve of her departure for Havana. As she intends to take with her, without their mother, my three children, Ernest, seven years old, Mary, four years, and Josephine, two years, I respectfully pray, General, that according to the laws of God and man, my dear children shall not be separated from their mother. I feel confident in your justice. I remain, General, your devoted and grateful servant, George Herrera. Herrera's poignant letter affirmed the family ties that had been denied by slavery. My wife, Rose, my dear children, their mother. He tied his family's plight to transcendent principles of right and wrong. Rose and her children may have belonged to her owner as property, but they also belonged to him and the mother and children belonged together. He invoked the laws of God and man, and he appealed to the Union General's sense of justice to prevent the children from being taken to Cuba. Herrera signed the letter in his own name, which suggests that he was literate, and the words were his own. So that's from the book. But alas, uh, this letter was to no avail, and the children were taken to Cuba. Why Cuba? 
Well, James DeHart, the dentist, had fled to Cuba in October of 1862 with a mass exodus of Confederates who were fleeing uh, the intensification of Butler's uh, harassment and persecution of them. While slavery was crumbling in New Orleans and in the Confederate South, it continued to thrive in Cuba, one of the last slave societies of the Americas, and a sugar society much like much like Havana. So DeHart had fled to Cuba to try to remake his life as a dentist, and you can imagine that being a dentist in a world made out of sugar is probably a pretty, pretty good line of work. But he wanted his family with him, he wanted his slaves with him because they were his most important asset, his, virtually his only source of wealth. And it is entirely possible that DeHart, like many other Confederates, thought that the Confederacy would ultimately survive and that one day he would be able to go back to New Orleans with his human property in tow. But it was not to be. Over the next couple of years, slavery unraveled in New Orleans. In 1864, a constitutional convention composed of unionists drafted a new state constitution that abolished slavery and freed, as a consequence, Rose Herrera. In January of 1865, Mary DeHart returned to New Orleans uh, to visit her friends by herself. And somehow, Rose Herrera heard that she was back in town, visited her, found her, tracked her down, and demanded that Mary DeHart return her children. But Mary DeHart refused. She said she didn't have them, couldn't get them back. At that point, and this, I think, is what really indicates the revolutionary quality of emancipation in a place like New Orleans. At that point, Rose Herrera had Mary DeHart thrown in jail for kidnapping. So that just shows you how topsy-turvy that world had become when Rose Herrera could now marshal the authorities in defense of her rights to her children, and not only that, but to possibly get Mary DeHart convicted as a kidnapper. Well, now we get into the complicated realm of the law of slavery and freedom in New Orleans. The case first came before a civilian court, and the civilian judge threw the case out because it was his determination that Mary DeHart had done nothing that was illegal in 1862, or rather 1863, the slaves belonged to her, and there was no law against a slave owner taking uh, his or her slaves wherever they wanted to go, wherever she, wherever she wanted to go. But that wasn't the end of the road. This is 1865. The war is still going on. The Union is still, uh, still occupies New Orleans, and there are military courts operational in New Orleans that are administered by the Union military. And with the help of her lawyer a man named Thomas Jefferson Durant, Rose Herrera gets Mary DeHart uh, arrested by the military authorities and tried in a military court. Again, part of the revolutionary quality of war and emancipation in New Orleans. The court case takes place in April of 1865. Over the course of the span of a couple of weeks, the same couple of weeks, that sees Lee's surrender at Appomattox and the assassination of President Lincoln. You can imagine that compared to the events of such colossal magnitude, 
the trial of Mary DeHart in New Orleans slipped under the, the radar of our historical consciousness. But it took place, and one of the revolutionary things about that court case is that Mary, sorry, that Rose Herrera could actually testify in court, something she never would have been able to do uh, in the age of slavery. Ultimately, the case is decided by none other than the Athenaeum's friend, Nathaniel Banks. And Banks is in a quandary because he wants to uphold the rule of law, but he also wants to see Mary DeHart punished because he thinks that what she did was wrong. The problem was it wasn't exactly illegal. Even Banks has to recognize that there's nothing in the law of 1860, that was nothing in the law of 1863 that uh, could allow him to convict Mary DeHart of kidnapping. So he does something very ingenious and slightly dubious. He convicts Mary DeHart not of kidnapping, but of violating Louisiana's own slave code, which prohibited the sale of children under the age of 10 apart from their mothers. That's what passed for the protection of, of slave families in Louisiana law. Now, that's not exactly what Mary DeHart did, but Banks said that she violated the spirit of the law, which was meant to keep families together. So he, on, on, that, on that basis, uh, Banks threw Mary DeHart in jail and uh, insisted on keeping her there until she, could return, until she could have the children returned to Rose Herrera. But the weeks turned into months, and the children did not materialize. Mary DeHart's friends in New Orleans petitioned the Union government to release her, saying she was not responsible, that the trial had been a farce. And eventually, Banks gets replaced by a new Union commander who accedes to the demands of Mary DeHart's friends and releases her to jail, releases her from jail, on the promise that she'll go back to Cuba, get the kids, and come back to New Orleans. So that's August of 1865. Well, she goes back to Havana over the protests of Rose Herrera and her children. Uh, in December of 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution is ratified, abolishing slavery in the United States but the children have still not come back. So they're still in bondage in Cuba. In the winter of 1865 and 1866, as the 13th Amendment is being ratified, a rumor starts to sweep through the Gulf South that newly freed people are being kidnapped in droves and sold as slaves in Cuba and Brazil. This rumor is so rife and so rampant that it sort of percolates up to the level of Congress. And uh, some of the major radicals in Congress, like Charles Sumner, get wind of it and demand an investigation. In March of 1866, Congress publishes a report on this rumor. The report is titled, On the Supposed Kidnapping of Colored uh, Citizens for Sale in, in Cuba and Brazil. And it was... Uh, I stumbled across that report while I was combing through an electronic database of, databases of publications, uh, 
published by Congress. Most of that report is taken up by documents about Rose Herrera and her children. But that is how Rose Herrera's case becomes part of the national record. Now, that brings us to the a moment um, 150 years ago uh, when slavery has been abolished, but Rose Herrera's children remain in bondage in Cuba. Now, I'm not going to tell you how the story turns out because I, I want you to read the book. Uh, but I am happy to answer uh, any questions you have about the story. But let me conclude with this thought. We're, we, we're situated here, we see this, this, this incredible gap between the legal abolition of slavery and the experience of emancipation on the part of Rose Herrera and her children. Right? There is a gap between abolition and emancipation. You could call that gap justice. And it seems to me that even 150 years after the legal abolition of slavery in the United States, we still live in that gap. And we still have a ways to go to reach justice. So that's the story of Rose Herrera and the kidnapping in the twilight of slavery, and I'm happy to take questions.